However, the most interesting last words are those in which a person reveals his deepest values and beliefs. And this Good Friday morning, we're going to look at some of Jesus' last words on the cross. Without doubt, they are some of the most profound and deeply insightful words we will ever come across. And as we reflect on these few short verses in Luke chapter 23, I want us to allow Jesus' words to impact our hearts as I draw four things from this passage. And the first thing I want you to notice is the ridicule. It says in verse 39, One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. Here we see a violent man being rightly executed for crimes against the state. In 1957, the German theologian Karl Barth was visiting Baal prison on Good Friday morning. And this is what he said of this incident from the cross. Which is more amazing, to find Jesus in such bad company, or to find criminals in such good company? Isaiah had prophesied 700 years earlier that God's suffering servant will be numbered with the transgressors. During his ministry, Jesus was regularly called a friend of sinners. And the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy culminated in Jesus being crucified alongside two criminals. A fact which is attested to in all four of the Gospels. Luke actually calls them wrongdoers. Uh, In the other Gospels, they describe them as robbers or bandits. More likely, they were political revolutionaries whose crimes funded insurrection against the Roman state. And the positioning of Jesus in the middle of these two criminals was no accident. It was deliberately intended to confer that he was the worst of the worst. Only the lowest of the low were executed by crucifixion. As Fleming Rutledge says, he was obscenely displayed, reviled, mocked, spat upon, beaten nearly to death, naked, plagued by insects, covered with dirt, sweat, blood and excrement. And yet in the midst of all this, God was at work. It was the plan of God to redeem a sin-sick world. Don Carson refers to ironies of the cross in his book Scandalous. And he talks about a man who couldn't save himself, but who saves others. Jesus saved others. He healed the sick, raised the dead, set the oppressed free. But he was unable to save himself from execution. What kind of saviour was he? To the crowd and dying criminals... He was at the last a massive disappointment. He was seemingly unable to help them or save them. Those that passed by taunted him. The religious leaders mocked him. And it seemed initially that both thieves were caught in this, caught up in this. Mark tells us in his gospel 
that both of them heaped insults on him. You know, we are no different. Today, most people just see Jesus Christ as a swear word. But after the ridicule comes a surprise. For the second thing we see is a rebuke. It says in verse 40 and 41, But the other criminal rebuked him, Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. During the hours that they were hanging on the cross, a remarkable change occurs. One of the two criminals continues railing against Jesus to the last As someone said, he died as he had lived, at odds with God and man. The second criminal, however, clearly begins to feel the probe of conscience as he hangs there in the presence of the crucified Son of God. And eventually he rebukes his former companion. Don't you even fear God? Most criminals profess their innocence to the last. There's a song uh, that Johnny Cash sings. Uh, It's a song by a guy called Nick Cave and it's called The Mercy Seat and it's about someone who's uh, going to the electric chair and all through the song he's, he's saying, declaring his innocence that he didn't do it. And then right at the last, at the very last line of the song, he says, I did it. If you've ever watched the film The Shawshank Redemption and you see the character being played by Morgan Friedman, A guy called Red. And he's asked what he's in prison for. And when he responds, I'm in uh, for murder the same as you. He's asked, was he innocent? And this is what he says. I'm the only guilty man in Shawshank. Most people portray their innocence. Declare their innocence. But this man, just like Morgan Friedman in the film had begun to appreciate the enormity of his sin. That he was about to come face to face with a holy God who judged people and punished people for their sin. He began to see the need to repent while he still could. And to our surprise, he pleads guilty and he pronounces sentence on himself. The punishment was just. This man's slender repentance was sufficient. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't blame others, blame his family, his upbringing. He doesn't claim extenuating circumstances. He takes responsibility for his own actions. Like David in Psalm 51, after he's committed adultery with Bathsheba, he's had her husband Uriah executed and he's found out and he says this to God, against you, you only, have I sinned. We read about the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15 as he comes home and he says to his father, he says, I have sinned against heaven and against you. He recognizes that his sin is first and foremost against God. And in the same breath he acknowledges that Jesus had done nothing wrong. What about you? Have you come to that place? Have you come to that place and acknowledge before God 
where you stood without Jesus Christ. How ironic that many had seen Jesus raise the dead and had refused to believe. Yet this criminal saw Jesus as he was being put to death and he believed. Following the rebuke, we, make, we see this man make a request. In verse 42 he says this, Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Both Judas and Pontius Pilate had come to the same conclusion as this criminal, that Jesus was innocent. Yet this man, unlike them, as he faces certain and imminent death, cries out, Jesus, remember me. What caused such a change in a rotten heart? Marcus Lone, in his book, The Voice of the Cross, says this, His view of Christ may have been imperfect and obscure. His grasp of truth may have been partial and incomplete. Faith had been built on the fragments of truth loosely scattered in his way. He had read the words which were nailed above his head. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. He had grasped the truth in spite of the jibe and had seen by faith That the cross was for him the way to the crown. We are told that this thief cried out Jesus. Actually, as you read through the Gospel of Luke, it's unusual to see Jesus' personal name used like this. There's only a couple of instances. How amazing that one of the few people with the confidence to be so familiar with Jesus was a convicted felon with his last breaths. His cry to Jesus is bold and extraordinary. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Isn't that the cry of anguish from many a desperate soul? None of us wants to be forgotten, especially when facing death. It all depends on who you cry out to. Who can remember In the book of Genesis, Joseph coming and crying out to the Pharaoh's Pharaoh's cupbearer in prison to remember him when he comes out of prison. And yet he forgets him. We're told it's two years later he remembered Joseph. How many of us feel like that? Forgotten, overlooked, missed out. And yet the story all through the Bible is of others who have called out to God, Lord, remember me. And God has heard their cry. We think of Hannah, barren and humiliated, desperately wanting a child, crying out, God, remember me. We think of Samson in prison, blinded, shackled, pulling round a huge mill wheel, grinding corn, crying out in his desperation, God, remember me. We think of Nehemiah, a man who had risked everything to see God's people worship again in Jerusalem and yet struggling against indifference and intense opposition. We remember Job in the darkest moments of intense physical suffering, 
We think of David, of Jeremiah, all of them calling out, Lord, remember me. And without exception, God heard their cry. Can it be any surprise to us that these cries to be remembered by God find their ultimate fulfillment at the cross? Jesus, God's beloved Son, who has only ever known a deeply intimate, satisfying, fulfilling relationship with his Father, for the first and only time experiences what it is to be forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cries out. Jesus experiences the punishment of God for our sin and swallows the bitter pill of rejection so that those who put their trust in him might have their sins washed away and might never be forgotten by his Father. What better place than the cross to exhibit the outrageous grace of God to the worst of the worst sinner? Here we see the gospel in all its splendour Offering hope to the hopeless, help to the helpless, grace to the graceless. Finally, we hear Jesus' wonderful response. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. You know, Jesus didn't respond to any of the derision that he'd received. Didn't say a word. But you know, Jesus, even in the anguish of physical suffering on the cross, couldn't keep quiet when he heard the genuine heart cry of a dying man. Everyone else would soon forget him, but Jesus wouldn't. This thief simply asked to be remembered, but Jesus far exceeded his request. Today, that morning, that man had been on a fast track to help. And yet in a moment, his eternal security was secured at the cross. It would have been far beyond his wildest expectations to find himself in paradise. But Jesus goes further. You will be with me today. This is Jesus' promise to all who put their trust in him. We live in a world where promises are lightly made and easily broken. Some of you may have experienced that. Some of you may have experienced the pain of having people you loved make promises to you, maybe marriage vows, which seem so easily broken. All of us have heard politicians making election promises, yet only to break them months later. Jesus never breaks his word. In his dying breath, Jesus shows himself to be the saviour of men. The Gospels tell us of his unusual birth. That he was to be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. It all pointed to Jesus' great mission. Of course Jesus didn't want to save himself. He was out to fulfil his father's great redemptive plan. And the people who mocked him were in one small sense right. If he had saved himself, he could not have saved others. The only way he could save others was not by saving himself. What 
an amazing grace-filled response from Jesus. You know, the word paradise has its roots in a Persian word which refers to a walled garden. For those who trust in Jesus, the door is open to this secret garden. In the Old Testament, Jacob found a stairway to heaven in the most unlikely of places. And here at the cross, this repentant sinner found another. I want to say I trust all of you have found that doorway into heaven, into God's presence. I trust all of you this morning have put your trust in Jesus Christ and all he accomplished on the cross. There was no difference between those two thieves before they came to die. Each was in desperate need of forgiveness. Each had the same opportunity for repentance. Each could have raised his voice in a cry for mercy. Yet one of them was saved and the other was lost. The whole scene is prophetic. On one hand, you still have those who scoff and revile. And on the other, those who trust and repent. This is the only case of a deathbed conversion that we read of in the Bible. Just one, so that none may lose hope. And just one, so that none may take it for granted. We used to, we used to play a game when I was a kid. And we used to call it Mob. And uh, this game involved, it would always be always played at twilight, just as it was starting to get dark. And uh, we used to play, we used to have a, what was called, a, one of the lampposts was a, called the mobbing post. And uh, the, light, the light would be on. And uh, we would run, we would all go and hide in people's gardens around. And someone would be on it. And uh, we would all hide and we would try to get to the mobbing post before we were seen. We would try to get back there. And we would always try to be the first person back, first man home. We'd be out there hiding in the darkness, skulking in the darkness, in the twilight, desperately trying to get to this light to be first man home. You know, we live in a world full of people living in shadows, living without relationship with God, desperately wanting to come home, coming to come, wanting to come home to God and God's presence and the glorious light of His presence, desperately wanting to do it. In a graceless world that writes off people as being beyond redemption, it's good for us to be reminded that not one of us is beyond the grace of God. As Philip Greenslade puts it, The first man home was a terrorist. The first man home was a terrorist. Reminds us of the grace of God to us. We have received amazing grace from God. We're going to break bread in a moment. Tony's going to come and play while we... Do it. And what I want you to do as we break bread is just come and bring some, take some bread, some wine, and break it with the person you're next to.
you're with next to someone you don't know, introduce yourself and break bread and pray together. I'm going to read as Tony plays and as the bread and wine are prepared. I'm going to read some verses from Isaiah 53. And I just want you to listen to them. Who has believed our message? To whom will the Lord reveal his saving power? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot sprouting from a root in dry and sterile ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with bitterest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way when he went by. He was despised and we didn't care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God for his own sins. But he was wounded and crushed for our sins. He was beaten that we might have peace. He was whipped and we were healed. All of us have strayed away like sheep. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the guilt and sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. From prison and trial, they led him away to his death. But who among the people realized that he was dying for their sins, that he was suffering their punishment? He had done no wrong, and had He had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and to fill him with grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have a multitude of children, many heirs. He will enjoy a long life and the Lord's plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of what he has experienced, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous. For he will bear all their sins. Hallelujah.